Roadrunner is a fitting name for the capability. It is because the Roadrunner always wins. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Girdler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Andrew Industries just unveiled its Roadrunner, a novel autonomous unmanned aircraft that stands about five feet tall, is capable of high subsonic speeds and long range that can be used for everything from air defense to strike reconnaissance and electronic warfare. And as it's powered by a jet engine, it can return home if not expended and aims to be delivered at an affordable price. We'll hear all about it and the strategy behind it from Andrew's Pat Morris. And A.J. Piplica, the CEO of Hermius, joins us to discuss the company's new contract with the Defense Innovation Unit, as well as upcoming tests of its hypersonic aircraft. And of course, we'll also have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Vago, you'll remember not long ago that you and the folks on the business roundtable on Sundays were talking about how Canada and Boeing were at war against each other, particularly in the commercial aircraft market. Well, Canada just signed for 16 P-8s. I think we can say the war is over. That really extends the production line for Boeing, and it solidifies the P-8 as the world's default choice for anti-submarine warfare. South Korea has signed up for at least three C-390 transports from Embraer, defeating the C-130 in a head-on competition. That same government committed to more F-35s, if we can find a way to move them through the production line. India announced an intent to acquire 97 additional Tejas Mark 1As, that's their light combat aircraft, from Hindustan Aeronautics. The Mark II has been in development for a number of years, but the Indian government has apparently given up on waiting for it to come around. Hey, there's a fight going on inside the defense world. Lockheed Martin and Howmet Aerospace are taking each other to court. You don't usually see suppliers and primes going at it in the public eye, but Howmet supplies titanium parts for the F-35. Titanium costs have gone out of sight since the Ukraine invasion, and they tried to pass those costs along. Lockheed doesn't really think that there's an inflation cause in the contract. It's going to be up to a judge to decide who's got it right. But for now, Howmet is not shipping the titanium parts, which means the F-35 may have to slow down its production. And of course, while not specifically an air power issue, Senator Tommy Tuberville has released his hold on most, not all, of the military promotions that have been proposed over the last nine months. Some significant offices are still on hold, particularly the Air Force Vice Chief and the commanders for Air Combat Command and PACAF. Vago? Absolutely fascinating uh, week. Yes, uh, if you're Boeing, that's certainly good news on the P-8, especially after the disappointment, I think, that surrounded the E-4B 
uh, decision just uh, relatively recently, or I think it was uh, last week. Amazing that the South Koreans have gone for the C-390, something that is, I'm sure, warming uh, L3 Harris's heart because they made that partnership last year with Embraer. And, you know, for an airplane, that is, you know, a lot of people, even at the time the airplane was rolled out, was going to be problematic, uh, perhaps for the C-130. And, you know, we wish India well with the Tejas, but that program has been ongoing for a long time. Uh, And so it's certainly going to be interesting uh, seeing as how the Mark I of the aircraft is not go- as good as the Mark II, and there were those who would even criticize the Mark II for being maybe not as good. And we certainly offer uh, our congratulations to all the flag and general officers that are being cleared. But, you know, it is unfortunate that some of the senior most leaders uh, aren't going to be taking their posts anytime soon. They have been waiting for, uh, in some cases, almost the full nine months for those orders to be issued. And they still aren't in the cases of significant senior leaders. And what do you think of the, both on the C-390 case and on Tejas, right? I mean, there are those who understand that India is developing this aircraft indigenously, but, you know, that there are better options. What's your sense on, you know, what the outlook is for the 390? Because that's a ball that seems to be gaining speed. And what's the future of Tejas? The 390 has won at least the last three competitions it's been in, and it's getting a lot of credibility in the global market. The Tejas, I doubt they were ever going to export any of them, but the Mark II, which has the GEF 414 engine, was a significant improvement. It's just a significant improvement that has cost so far about $1.4 billion to deliver and is still five to eight years behind. So Interesting that the government finally gave up on it and said, we need more of what we already have rather than waiting for something better. And joining us today is Pat Morris. He is the Senior Director of Air Defense at Andrel Industries. Uh, They made a lot of news uh, over the past week unveiling their innovative Roadrunner system. It is an unmanned vehicle that can be used for everything from air defense to strike to reconnaissance. It's totally reusable. It doesn't use a solid rocket motor. It uses a, a proprietary jet engine that the company developed. And it is a very exciting thing to see because it actually has a customer, Pat. Welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Thanks very much for making time for us. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me. So tell the audience a little bit. You know, you guys did make some headlines. You guys rolled it out just before the Reagan uh, Forum out in uh, sunny California, and you guys had a media day as well, and we're sorry that we couldn't attend that. Talk to us about what makes Roadrunner unique. Similar to a lot of the thesis and thought we put behind products we invest in at Anderol, we are obviously... Uh, very close to the counter UAS mission set and autonomous air vehicles in general. You can see that from the range of different products that are are currently in the different portfolios at Anderil. So we made a decision a while ago to take a look at the counter UAS problem as it's evolving very rapidly, looking at the early days from uh, some of the transition of counter ID technology to counter UAS technology. And now some of the ongoing analysis that's been done in a number of different campaigns stemming from what was observed in the nagorno karabakh uh, conflict, what has been going on in Ukraine, and now what we see in the CENTCOM region where the threats continue to rapidly evolve. Looking at that, knowing threats are going to continue to get harder to detect and be flying faster and at different uh, altitudes and in different profiles, 
while we continue to iterate on our detection capability, which is part of the full line of autonomous products we offer in the portfolio here at Anvil, we're also looking at novel ways to approach the defeat side of the Canary OES problem set. And in that, we found that being able to launch your interceptor, your effector, faster, uh, essentially on initial detection, without the operator having to think through expending the munition, uh, kind of depleting his inventory, because he has the ability to wave Roadrunner M off and recover it in the event that he decides not to engage, was a compelling adjustment to the way that operators are deploying effectors today. And Pat, how scalable is it, the missile itself? I mean, this is something optimized right now for counter UAS, but with the basic technologies you've got in there, can it be scaled for counter cruise missile or even long range missile defense? Yeah. So we have obviously been focusing on what is kind of nearest threat to the boat, which is obviously the the group three threats that we we see our end users working on in a number of different areas of responsibility. We designed the platform as an autonomous air vehicle specifically to make it modular and designed in some of the performance of the capability to intentionally be designing for the future threat. So we've observed a number of programs uh, across the DoD continue to invest in current technologies to try and make them somewhat better than what they currently are today, or in some scenarios, go after some next-gen capability. We took a step back and said, as Andrew, how do we how do we try and leapfrog technologies and try and put service members and our allies back ahead of the threat where we've become comfortable now, effectively for the last 20 years in some of the GWAT con ops and technology development that's gone into that mission space. So we have been building towards the ability to broaden the threat categories that we can go after. So we do think it will be applicable to beyond just the current group three threats that are seen today, up to and including some categories of manned platforms, some categories of air breathing threats, uh, including some of the more maneuverable ones that have become public on media now with some of the threats that are emerging in some of these theaters where U.S. service members are currently deployed. And one of the things we see, to your point, Pat, is, you know, in, in Ukraine, it's the it's the exchange ratio for some of these things, right? I mean, um, you guys are looking at, you know, as Palmer said in his press briefing, even now, you're at the low hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then once you guys are in series production, that number is going to come down rather dramatically. And I want to try to get to your methodology and mindset to try to do that. You guys have hired Tesla's former production manager, who's going to be helping make magic for you. How have you guys designed this platform for production? And then how are you managing your supply chain? Again, you, you guys have developed a rather unique jet engine to power this thing instead of using a solid rocket motor and expending it, right? You guys do want this to autonomously come back if it's not engaged. So you can air toward putting more of these in the air to loiter, to defend, to protect. And then anything that's not expended doesn't fall out of the sky, but actually comes back and you guys can reuse it. Walk us through your mindset on how you've designed for production and how you're managing the supply chain to try to make sure you don't end up on the back foot on this and actually control cost. Yeah, great question. From the very beginning of the concept work we put into Roadrunner as the autonomous air vehicle, we were specifically looking at all of the mission scenarios where we see service members having to do 
production at scale and deployment at scale. Lots of conversation has happened around countering swarms of aerial threats for the Roadrunner M variant, or even more simply, just complex attacks where there's multiple air vehicles being shot at a site or at service members uh, simultaneously. So from our first start of this work, we have been focused on being able to build at rate and achieve cost parity with threats that we are seeing both today and what we at Android believe will be the threats of tomorrow. And our understanding from interaction with the DOD has been that they obviously always strive to achieve cost parity with the adversaries that they're facing, if not be able to beat the cost and uh, do that at rate. So for us, we have designed the capability to be manufactured at scale. You've obviously seen from some of the announcements that you've just referenced that we are building capacity across a number of different technology programs to be able to produce at the scale we believe is going to be necessary for some of the products that we are bringing to market and, and to the Defense Department. That includes investment in manufacturing space in California and in other locations where we're investing heavily. Uh, and all of the planning that goes into the design for manufacturability of all of our products. And then on the specific components, like the jet engine that you mentioned, that is a decision we spend a lot of time doing analysis on, whether we want to partner or sub out or buy into supply chain from the industrial base, or if we want to start developing so we can in-house and more tightly and more effectively control our own supply chain for some of the critical components that we see going into our products that span across a number of different programs for us. Let's follow up on the scale production. Anduril has so far been comparatively boutique in the scale of things that you produce. You're talking now about moving into many, many, many weapons. Are you developing a single production line dedicated to this product or a more flexible facility? What's the plan for getting from here to full serial production? And where are you on the production learning curve? Yep. So we are in the process of establishing the capacity to build Roadrunners at scale. The final steps and final completion of the Roadrunner M variant is an area where we're working closely with our, our teams across the different functional areas inside of Anduril to be able to do the weapon payload integration at scale and identify facilities that we currently possess or facilities that we would have to build ourselves into and, and acquire in the future to be able to keep pace with uh, any future demand that comes from the department or from some of the U.S. allies that we uh, believe will have interest in this type of capability. And that has us looking at rates of many hundreds, if not thousands a year of roadrunners when we do enter a full production rate. Why is it called Roadrunner? Is it because the Roadrunner always wins in the cartoon? Roadrunner is a fitting name for the capability. It is because the Roadrunner always wins. We think we did build a next-gen autonomous air vehicle that will be able to meet both current and future threats. And to what I suspect is the underlying part of the question, we think there's always a bit of jest in competition across industry and, and are happy to bring that to market to try and bring some lighthearted jest to uh, to market to the industry. Um, okay, I think uh, that's terrific. And let the le record show that as soon as the name came out, 
one of the uh, first things that came out of J.J. Gertler's mouth was, I bet you it's named after the Roadrunner because the Roadrunner always wins. I just want that to be uh, on on the record that, uh, uh, Pat, he got it. J.J. got it. <laughs> you were Most saying, customers Pat? and end users that are interested in the capability do quickly catch on to the name. And that's usually one of the first comments back after we go through the initial presentation of the content is they want to understand how we came up with the name. So I've got a, a two-part question uh, for you that's a little bit sort of higher level. How has being a privately held company helped you in the execution of this, the speed, the agility? Uh, because we find out that you know, for all their strengths, right? Some of the bigger companies tend to be a little bit more bureaucratic than you guys are. They tend to be a little bit slower moving and they are not as flexible in price and the kind of investment you guys are making and the kind of, frankly, the profit margins you guys are willing to accept. How has all of that helped you execute this program and execute it quickly? And I've got to follow up. One of the core theses behind Enroll as a company has been to the extent possible to try and make our own investments into developing some of the core technologies that we want to bring to market. That decision that we're able to move on quickly still as a private entity allows us to move very rapidly. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is the ability to rapidly develop initial first working prototypes of capabilities, both to prove out the concept of what we're trying to develop and to start putting new technologies in front of end users and in front of some of the organizations that would be interested in it. And that ability to move quickly, leveraging private capital and some of the money that's been invested in Android, I think sets us apart from some of the primes who have a, like you mentioned, more bureaucratic approach to some of the places they invest. And you've probably seen from some of the other content that's been put out to the public, especially from some of our leadership and some of their public engagements, Anderil does make significant investment into developing products as a way to try and bring capability to market faster, uh, which we think is going to be one of the critical things that DoD is going to have to continue to adopt and evolve the way that they build their acquisition models, just because technology is evolving faster than it used to. We believe that that's a model that will transition even if the company were to become a publicly traded company. What is an area where Android is going to continue to push that model helps align risk across industry and government back towards a position where we think industry benefits by making these bets on their technologies. Uh, if we can build fast, if we can develop quickly by investing our own money, and we have the opportunity to enter into some of these larger programs, both sides win. The government and the end user, the service member that's deployed, gets new technology faster and uh, Android effectively makes the money that they need on their investments to make it a viable business for us. Pat, but let me ask this. Historically, whenever somebody invests in a better mousetrap and brings it to the Pentagon, it then launches a assessment of the mousetrap. Then it writes a requirement about the mousetrap. And then it's competed and the person who can buy into the program wins. Often it's not the initial innovator nor the person who brought that idea to the Pentagon's attention. How is the ecosystem changing to allow an Android, right? I mean, this is a unique circumstance where Ukraine, for example, has a voracious need for a capability like this. But more broadly, are you 
sensing that the Pentagon is doing business differently to reward the person who developed the idea. In this case, Palmer, right, came up with the idea and said, hey, the market needs this. You guys put the engineering behind it, the thought behind it, the investment behind it, and you're bringing it to the to the Pentagon. And this time they're buying it. Do you notice a broader change in the ecosystem to reward you guys? Because historically, that's kind of not how the Pentagon does it. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. We think that the necessity to respond faster, given the evolving threats, is going to cause the government to have to rethink the way they go about acquisition of new technologies. Uh, so we believe that the government is going to start adjusting the way that they acquire new technology and evaluate it and make decisions on what they want to acquire in competitions. And we have seen through novel contract structures like OTAs, other transaction authorities, and other contracting mechanisms that do currently exist, that there has been a focused effort on rapid acquisition, rapid development of new technologies, where we've found that that affords us the ability to bring emerging technology to the different services, where it has given us the opportunity to compete with some of the larger primes and, and with other defense oriented companies where we are able to show emerging technologies. And in the event that we are successful in some of those competitions or evaluations have had the opportunity to go through OT contracts or move into R and D contracts where we have had the ability to bring capability to end users and service members that uh, were part of those evaluations in the beginning. So they are, we, we think there's going to be pull from just ongoing geopolitical environments where technology is going to have to evolve more rapidly and the government's going to have to have ways to acquire new technologies quicker. And we are positioning ourselves to be able to respond quickly to that with the, the core thesis of the company with investing in our own technology so we can move at the speed of what is typically thought of as commercial technology development but do it in a way that is meeting the stringent requirements of what DOD and service members require. And just to help quantify the small agile company advantage, we've seen the rollout. When did the first napkin sketch or the first idea hit that eventually became Roadrunner? How long did it take you to get it from that idea to a product that's actually been sold? From today, uh, December of 23, we are just past the two-year mark from when the first conversation about a novel interceptor started at Andrew. We think that's relatively fast to go from first conversation to flying and moving to the point of a public release and ready for production. Looking across some of the historical programs that are similar technology category, that seems like a, a very fast development program especially given the novel technologies and some of the subsystems that we've developed and the performance of the capability that we've demonstrated to date. A lot of hard work done. Pat Morris, Senior Director of Air Defense at Andrel Industries. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And if you like the Air Power Podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. 
The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And now here's Vago's interview with A.J. Piplica, CEO of Hermius. A.J., thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you back on. Likewise. Thanks, Vago. So congratulations are in order. A couple of weeks ago, you guys were awarded a contract by the Defense Innovation Unit. The first year increment of that is $23 million, but over time could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, assuming the government wants to exercise those options. Two mature hypersonic aircraft subsystem, as well as mission system technologies. You guys are obviously trying to become the next biggest thing in hypersonics, which is very popular, and especially shooting long-term for the commercial market. You guys have your high-speed flight test prototype, the quarter horse that you guys are working. Walk us through what this contract will allow you guys to do in a little bit, what the purpose of the HICAP initiative that DIU has, right, which is the High Cadence Airborne Testing Capabilities Initiative. Certainly. So I'll, I'll start with that part. So one of the kind of key gaps identified by the Test and Research Management Center uh, within the Office of the Secretary of Defense as within the nation's capabilities for not just ground testing, but flight testing at hypersonic speeds or near hypersonic speeds. Um, I think last time I did the math, we've spent something like 30 minutes in high-speed air-breathing flight as a nation, and that, that makes it really difficult to develop vehicles in a regime where there's not a whole lot of flight data. So DIU has been tasked with uh, increasing the cadence of, uh, of flight testing, specifically around a range of different systems. Uh, and we're very proud to be a part of the high cap program, bringing Porter Horse and eventually Dark Horse to bear to expand the nation's flight test capability. So that's really fantastic. The flavor of the program here that we're now working with DIU certainly uh, you know, leverages the flight test capabilities of Quarter Horse to mature some of the uh, subsystem and, and mission system technologies for uh, eventual operational hypersonic aircraft. But it also allows us to continue to develop some of those things on the ground and buy down risk. So the kind of outcome that we're looking for at the end of this, this multi-year effort is really to demonstrate that those core uh, subsystems, so uh, high-speed air breathing propulsion, thermal management, power generation, uh, as well as the mission systems uh, are sufficiently mature to transition them to at least a, a prototyping program around high-speed aircraft. So obviously that, that aligns really, really well with our overall vision as a business. We have to do this work anyway, not just for the long-term commercial applications of the technology that we see, uh, but also for the, the near-term uh, national security applications. So that was a, a really kind of a marriage made in heaven there. To, uh, to be able to work together with, with DIU to do this. So um, yeah, very much looking forward to getting into the weeds and, and delivering on this. And what are the next stages of this, right? I mean, HiCat, you're not the only company that's gotten that. A number of other firms have also received contracts like this, as DIU likes to spread the wealth around and get multiple approaches to this done. What are the next steps of this, right? And what are the deliverables? Give the audience a little bit of a sense of the timelines and what's got to happen when, because you guys pride yourselves on moving fast. And That's so right. does the IU for that matter. Certainly. So the first year uh, is really a bunch of kind of early stage uh, requirements development and planning for uh, later stage flight test activity. Some of these technologies uh, are not at a point where they're ready for flight test yet. So there's uh, there's some work around that. 
Um, but also, you know, Quarter Horse is still in development uh, and will come online for commercial flight test capabilities at uh, at some level in 25, and then uh, kind of toward the the full end of its uh, of its capabilities in 26. So, of course, we we look forward to leveraging Quarter Horse to mature some of those capabilities, especially uh, some of the smaller subsystem capabilities. So, uh, these are things like sensors, seekers, communication packages, things that, that will eventually need to be integrated into an operational uh, hypersonic reusable platform. So that said, propulsion technology developments, um, especially on the turbine-based combined cycle engine side, uh, is a key element here. And this is really taking what we've done with the Chimera turbine-based combined cycle engine for Quarter Horse and applying it to the F-100-based Chimera 2 engine that will power Dark Horse, which is our operational hypersonic aircraft. And you guys received your first F-100 earlier this year. Talk to us about the kind of growth that's going to happen to the company, AJ, right? That's a nice amount of money to get. You guys have been financing this as a private initiative so far. Talk to us a little bit about what this money allows you to do and the kind of growth you guys are going to be experiencing over the next couple of years. Sure. So I think I think the real key to look at here in terms of the, the value of, of a partnership like this with DIU for the company is, is like, yes, the money is nice, but it's much more about kind of creating a bridge across the valley of death. Um, you know, there, there isn't a, an existing program for hypersonic aircraft uh, operationally within, within the Air Force or writ large within the DOD. So you know, as we're uh, working to create that program alongside our Air Force and OSD partners, it will take time. And ensuring that uh, we've got the financial fortitude to, I mean, to, to be frank, be alive when it comes around. That's, that's the startup's challenge in, in working with the Department of Defense. So luckily, we've got great partners in DIU where we're able to bring a significant amount of value in parallel you know, with that program development. And then, of course, deliver the, the high speed and high cadence flight test capabilities that the country is looking for, um, which is kind of the other you know leg of our bridge across the valley of death strategy is leveraging quarter horse for commercial flight test capabilities as a service. So you pair these two things together. You know, Now we've built a, a pretty solid book of revenue that not only gives us the longevity that we need to get to a program of record for you know, something like Dark Horse. But also, frankly, the ability to raise capital and, and continue accelerating dark horse development. So, you know, the team today is about 170 people. Come this time next year, uh, we may be close to double that as we both ramp up on this effort under HiCat, as well as you know, continue and get into flight testing on on quarter horse and, and really start to ramp up dark horse development. AJ, we wish you uh, nothing but fair winds and following seas as you do that. All the best for the holidays. Hope you guys have a happy new year and uh, looking forward to continuing to cover your guys' journey as you try to redefine the hypersonic market. It's really exciting to watch and really proud of you guys. Thanks so much, Vago. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week.